We'll read about Naboth's vineyard this morning. 1 Kings 21, starting in verse 1. Now Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, the king of Samaria. After this, Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it is near my house, and I will give you a better vineyard for it. Or if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. And Ahab went into his house, vexed and sullen because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would not eat no food. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said, Why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? And he said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite, and I said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else, if it please you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel, his wife, said to him, Do you not govern Israel? Arise and eat bread, and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal. And she sent the letters to the elders and the leaders who lived with Naboth in his city. And she wrote in the letters, Proclaim a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people and set two worthless men opposite him and let him bring a charge against him saying, You have cursed God the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. And the men of the city, the elders and the leaders who lived in the city, did as Jezebel had sent word to them, as it was written in the letters that she had sent to them. They proclaimed a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people. And two worthless men came in and sat opposite him. And the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned. He is dead. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive but dead. As soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, to take possession of it. That account... From First Kings illustrates for us the depravity of the human soul and just how far any man or woman is capable of going in breaking the Tenth Commandment. That's our text this morning, Exodus 20. We've been working through Exodus for a number of months. And we're in verse 17, you shall not covet. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Covetousness. Anyone can covet and anything can be coveted. A two-year-old who isn't capable of much is quite capable of coveting. Can I get a witness to this? 
I mean, innately, they know how to covet. They see a toy in another's hand. They want that toy. They covet that toy. The young can covet. The old can covet. Mothers, fathers, rich, poor, white-collar, blue-collar, teachers, preachers are capable of coveting. And anything can be coveted. Be it a vineyard like Ahab, his grass wasn't good enough. He wanted his neighbor's grass or fields. You can covet a car, a house, a spouse, money, spiritual gifts, power, popularity, someone else's parents can be coveted, someone else's church can be coveted, someone else's pastor can be coveted. Anything that belongs to anyone can be coveted. When Paul uh, reflects on and repeats this commandment in Romans 7, uh, he does not supply an object. You notice that. He simply says, you know the commandment, you shall not covet. And that's because the command covers everything and everyone. What we desire, beloved, that which we covet is a matter of how and upon what or whom we think. The great Puritan theologian John Owen, um, in his writing on spiritual mindedness, uh, he makes a statement in the form of a question. He says, what do you think about when you're not thinking about anything in particular? Okay, in other words, what is the default setting of your mind? What do you revert to when you're not being forced to go in any certain direction? That, Owen says, is the indicator of our spiritual mindedness. It is the measuring device of our desires. Now, looking at the Decalogue, Looking here at the Ten Commandments, we've seen already that there is an upward and an outward focus here in the Lord's Ten Commandments. In the first table of the law, our attention was drawn upward in relation to our Creator and in relation to our Redeemer. The focus in the first four commandments, in other words, is Godward. Vertical fidelity. And then from commands 5 through 10, we're called to love our neighbor, and that's horizontal loyalty. That's what we see in the Decalogue. So Israel, Old Covenant Israel, is being instructed in covenant relational loyalty, both vertically and horizontally, as God's people. Now, this morning in the last commandment, uh, we see an inward focus. A focus on the unseen, that private inner region of man, the inner man. And yet there's no such thing as a private sin. There's no such thing as a a sin that doesn't affect the entire community. And, And that's what the Lord's getting after when he lays out this, his ten words, to his old covenant people Israel who are getting ready to go in and possess a land. And we'll see once they do possess that land in Joshua, we see that the private sin of one man does affect the entire covenant community. 
In Joshua 7, God declares, Israel has sinned. Okay, Israel has sinned. They've transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They've taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. Okay, the Lord says, my people have sinned. Well, reality was that one man sinned, affected the whole covenant community. So Joshua brings out these men, puts them up and lines them up. And finally, Achan answers Joshua, verse 20, Truly I have sinned against the Lord of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted and I took them, and see they're hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. Okay, story goes on, judgment ensued, and death came not only to Achan, but to his entire family. It has consequences. To this very day, beloved, one individual Christian's behavior impacts the whole covenant community. And so in that way, God commands upward, outward, and Inward focus of his people. Always has, always will. Now, unlike the books of many, many religions, the Bible says that sin ultimately is an inward manner. Amen? Now, an Indonesian tribal chief is quoted as having said this. Quote, I would rather have the 7,777 commandments and prohibitions of the Toraja Adat than the Ten Commandments of the Christians. For the Ten Commandments demand my whole heart, whereas the 7,777 ancestral commands and prohibitions have room for a lot of freedom. End quote. God in his sovereign perfection covers all the bases, if you will, and reveals to us that his holy law kills us. It nails us to the cross. Therefore, we need a substitute. Therefore, we need one who can uphold that law in our place. Therefore, the law drives us to Christ. Amen? They don't have Christ. They have no hope. The law kills. Christ came to fulfill the law. He is our hope. We rest in him. Amen? So, as God's new covenant people, we're instructed throughout the New Testament, we see the commandments reiterated over over and over again with great clarity. So let's ask ourselves this morning, coveting. Okay, what is it? What is coveting? Well, to covet is an inappropriate desire for something that belongs to someone else. It is also an ungodly desire for anything that would take place, primacy, or the priority of God in our lives. It's also defined as excessive wanting, unreasonable passion, selfish ambition, and desire. Key word this morning, desire. Passion. The desire in mind here with coveting are desires that are ungoverned. Kindled in the eyes of the mind. Kindled in the eyes of the mind. Which either envies or begrudges 
the things that our neighbor possesses. Now, covetousness, I don't think I have to tell you, drives much of modern culture. Just turn on the TV and advertisers say, this you must have, you cannot live without this. I've been hooked a few times by these late night infomercials. My wife makes fun of me. You know, I I bought pillows from there. Um, um, The the thing that, you know, when your sun damaged uh, uh, headlight cover is all fogged up and they, you just wipe, it just wipes right off and I have to have it. So I order it. And then I find out otherwise. The only good thing I've purchased on television is is a certain pillow. I have, that's helped me a great deal. But other than that, they tell you, you must have this, amen? This is what they say, that you must have this. Entire political campaigns are launched claiming that one group's riches, everyone deserves, right? Therefore, the government must redistribute wealth. That's national covetousness on display. This sin also manifests itself in the act of vandalism because vandalism says, if I can't have it, you can't have it either. Covetousness shows up numerous ways. We don't even have time this morning to see where it shows up. So that basically is what covetousness is. Um, Next, what's forbidden in this commandment? Okay, this Old Testament command, if you notice, it's timeless and it's terse, it covers seven things which cover everything. You shall not cover your neighbor's house, shall not cover your neighbor's wife, male servant, female servant, ox, donkey, which is very common in an agrarian society. We're, we're not farmers, I don't think any of us here. So then just um, anything that's your neighbor's, he wraps it all up. Or anything. When the Lord says you shall not covet your neighbor's house, he doesn't simply mean the big, beautiful brick house in the pristine neighborhood um, with the choice zip code. I coveted certain houses like that as a kid. Just six blocks from my house were these just beautiful, beautiful homes. My friends lived in some of them, and I coveted them because where I lived, it wasn't quite as nice. Now, although that's part of the command, it's much broader than that. He means you shall not covet your neighbor's household. Anything and everything that is your neighbor's. The entirety of that which belongs to your neighbor, including possessions, positions, and people. Don't covet. Question 84 in the Shorter Catechism. Reads, what's forbidden in the Tenth Commandment? The Tenth Commandment forbids all discontentment with our own estate, envying or grieving at the good of our neighbor in all inordinate motions and affections to anything that is his. See, coveting spirals downward and outward. It brings about trouble, it brings about great pain, and it spoils, beloved, relationships. It spoils relationships. Desire for another person's spouse, for instance, will necessarily cause problems with in a marriage. The undesirable spouse, whether any action is taken or not outside of the marriage, they will eventually pick up on this and realize that my spouse doesn't love me like he or she once did. 
where his or her desire is somewhere else, on someone else. So it brings about even greater pain if the act is actually carried out. We see the destruction in our own society. We see it in much of the church, unfortunately. The same thing applies to another person's house, their property, or their success. You could have two young boys who grow up, they're best buddies. They run the neighborhood together. They go to school together. They're head to head. They do everything nose to nose. They graduate from high school together. They go on to college together. They both do just as well. They both graduate from college. And then once they graduate, one of them profits financially, very significantly and very swiftly. Whereas the other does not. And the one that does not now becomes covetous of the one who's on the faster course of success and the friendship is dissolved. It's coveting. The one that has not covets the one that does have. And the friendship is dissolved. You know, it happens between siblings. It happens between church members. It happens between pastors and their ministries. So the ramifications with, when it's within a family or a church, I mean, that's bad enough. But on a larger scale, covetous desires have, an even, have even greater consequences. You take a ruler of a nation or take a country that's covetous and they covet what belongs to another ruler or country, whether it's resources, riches, land, what results? War. Bloodshed. Producing great sorrow on a grand scale. Okay, but above all, beloved, covetousness ruins us spiritually. In the parable of the sower, Matthew chapter 13, Jesus describes the seed. Remember the seed? The seed's always good. It's the word. Seed goes out, it's always good. The problem's with the ground. And the seed goes out in one instance and it falls among the thorns. It's a very sobering picture of the word of God that is sown. Okay, it sprouts, it brings forth some visible fruit. It brings forth apparent life. It begins to grow. And then the riches and the cares of the world, otherwise referred to as thorns and thistles, what they do is they grow up alongside of it and eventually choke out what the seed produced, and it dies. That's the word that was beginning to blossom in someone's heart. But the care for the world and its riches overcomes it. It squeezes it out. It chokes it out. And it's death. So it ultimately proves to be unfruitful. A once professed faith is strangled. First Timothy 6 verse 9, look at it. Paul writes, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves selves with many pangs. So here you have misplaced desire. Nothing wrong with desire. Amen? Right? Middle, left. Nothing wrong with desire. This is misplaced desires that produce disastrous, disastrous results. And you wander away. It shipwrecks a once said faith. 
the love of money. Nothing wrong with money. It's the love of money. Because it reveals what we worship. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, Paul also writes, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Okay, this is in you. If it's earthly and it's in you, put it to death. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, okay, evil desire, and covetousness, which is what? Idolatry. It has to do with worship. It's connected to worship. So here, covetousness refers to greed. And when we're constantly longing after others' possessions, positions, or people, Ultimately, that's idolatry because it is a form of worship. Now, coveting, beloved, also reveals dissatisfaction with the providence of God or distrust in the providence of God or perhaps both, dissatisfaction and distrust as regards God's providence that he's in control of our day-to-day lives. Jesus said in Luke 12, verse 15, take care. Be on your guard. Okay, Christian, beloved believers, me, you, this family of God, be on guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Do we get that here in America, beloved? In our day, the substance of a man's existence, his prestige, his power, his recognition is almost exclusively tied to the stuff he has. Is it? You see it as this? It is. It's obvious. Now, the word life, when Jesus uses this word life, it has to do with the essence of a man's life, the heart of the man, the core of the man, the meaning of the person, not what he has. His life. Now, covetousness is not only a problem for those who have, it's probably usually more of a problem for those who have not. And how is that revealed? Well, it's revealed when the have-nots look at those who have and they bash those who have simply because they have not. And because they have not, they bash those that have and it reveals that their heart is even more covetous. It's not just the people who have stuff. And that leads to envy. Okay, envy. Now, I believe envy is the grossest and most destructive form of coveting, especially when it shows up amongst God's people. Now, envy, unfortunately, is sometimes misinterpreted as admiration. Oh, I envy that person's life. But it's not. Now, well-placed admiration is very biblical. Well-placed admiration is very good. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul says that it's a key ingredient for spiritual mentoring. It's a key to discipleship. He encouraged the Philippians in chapter 3 and verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So admiration looks at the exemplary lives of others, those who are in the faith, and the response is is grateful, it's humble, and then it earnestly patterns its life after them for walking in a manner worthy of the calling of Jesus Christ. Do we not have these people in our lives, beloved? 
We have them in this congregation. That I know. There are certain people I look to that I admire. I admire their walk. I admire their godly integrity. And I learn from it and I glean from it. That's good. Envy doesn't do that. Envy doesn't admire. Envy does not pursue imitation of worthy mentors. Envy's ugly. Envy instead finds fault with them and attempts to bring them down. That's what, en- that's what envy does. It attempts to bring them down, and when it's revealed, they, begin to, they respond by lashing out with spiteful hatred when they're exposed. Very dangerous, envy. See, envy looks like Joseph's brother's. Envy looks like Potiphar's wife plotting to destroy a righteous man. That's what envy looks like. Envy looks like Haman trying to destroy Mordecai. Envy looks like the Pharisees seeking to kill Jesus. Remember the scripture says they envied him. They were envious. It's destructive. So these kind of evil desires ruin families, they ruin congregations, they ruin nations. And this is what James is after when he's speaking to Christians in James 4, okay? Usually in these type of sermons, we, we, we go down, right? We go down, we're brought down, and then we're lifted up. That's where we're going. So we're, just, we're on the downward slope. Are you with me? Downward slope. This drives us to see how much more and more every day we need our Savior. Are you with me? Notice what he says. What causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Speaking to Christians. Is it not this? That your passions are at war within you. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And when you do ask, you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own. What? Passions. Interesting. Passion creates desire, always does. Passion always creates desire. And here, he says, look, you pray, you ask, but your aim is wrong. Your motivation, your inward unseen motivation is wrong, and you desire wholeheartedly to appropriate blessing to yourself out of covetousness, asking not in faith, but from wrong motives. So once again, desire in itself is not wrong. As a matter of fact, God created his people to have proper desire, to have desire. Look at the creation account, Genesis 2, verse 9. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. You know, the Hebrew word for pleasant is the same word we have in Exodus 20. It's the word covet. Covet. God made things before the fall that were appropriate to covet. Are you with me? Appropriate to covet. A desire that is properly focused. That is, it has a proper aim. The locus of focus is good and it's on. The location of focus, the place of our focus. This is an object, a tree, created by God to be desired with an aim that is good and is right. 
That's what God created, things to be coveted. Nothing wrong with it until Genesis 3. Okay? Notice. This is, this is where the aim and location of focus becomes perverted. Okay? Now, follow along. Genesis 3, verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree, now this is the forbidden tree, the only tree forbidden by God. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So when Satan deceived Eve, okay, she saw that the tree was desirable to make one wise. Okay? Now the word for desire or desirable is the same word in the commandment for covet. She saw the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was covetable, It was desirable for the wrong, she had her eye on the wrong object. She was seeking wisdom that comes from outside of the wisdom of God. God was providing wisdom, but it wouldn't be found here. So she's seeking wisdom from a means that God had forbidden. She went after it. Wrong motives, just as James describes in the New Covenant. And then the wrong end is always the result. Amen? I desire that guy, but that guy's not a man of God. But I desire that guy, he's not a man of God. But I desire, he's pleasant or she's pleasant, but she's not a woman of God. He's not. A, don't go down that road. Seeking wisdom the kind of wisdom God forbids, seeking that which God forbids. So ever since the fall, beloved, our desires are easily twisted, you know, like a wire hanger. You know, I like those fat hangers in my closet because they take up all the room, those big fat plastic ones. I like wire hangers, but if you mess up a wire hanger, like lock your keys in your, well, don't, but if you've ever locked your keys in your car, you undo a wire hanger and you, you know, fish it out. Try to put that thing back into shape to work properly as a hanger, guess what? You can't. You can't. You cannot ever get it back into its proper... Ever since the very first sin, our hearts have mimicked this sin over and over again. Coveting, desiring an object. It is not, first of all, pleasing to the Lord. We fall prey. So sin is always stirring within us and left to ourselves, beloved, be it not for the grace of God's law. Is there grace in law? You better believe there is because it drives you to Christ. It exposes our sin. Were it not for the grace of God's law, we wouldn't know what coveting is. That's what Paul said. Look at Romans 7, verse 7. If it had not been for the law, I would, have, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said you shall not covet. Now, perhaps since we are made in the image of God, we would know that you know, killing another, murdering another is sin. Or committing adultery would seem pretty obvious that that's sin. But this coveting, I wouldn't even know that it were a sin. Were it not for the law. We would think of it as healthy drive, ambition, chasing the American dream, which isn't bad in and of itself. But eventually, because of sin within us, 
these motives become twisted like a hanger. It leads to grave selfishness. And you know, materialism is to the selfish heart what heroin is to the addict. Now, that's what's forbidden. That's the negative side of the commandment. And we see in every one of the Ten Commandments a negative command, that which is prohibited. But yet we also see at the same time a positive requirement. Okay, now, now we're moving up. Positive requirement. What's the positive side of this commandment? Well, it's the same thing that serves as a remedy for covetousness. It's this. Contentment. Whoever said it, I heard you. Contentment. First Timothy 6. Paul writes, Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world. We cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. You know, being consumed by longing for something other than what you have cultivates unthankfulness. It cultivates unthankfulness and discontentment with what you do have. Discontent. So rather than being thankful and cultivating more and more thankfulness for what we do and who we do have, the people and the things God has given us, we're constantly looking over our neighbor's fence. We're across the way, right? Like Ahab, you know, his, he wanted, his grass wasn't green enough. Hebrews 13, 5. Keep your life, is the instruction, free from the love of money. And be content with what you have. For he has said, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. He is God. So the only antidote here, beloved, is to trust God to meet our needs. And then contentment arises when we realize God's sufficiency for our needs. That's the the positive requirement of this commandment. Okay, so... What's not coveting? We talk about desire. We talk about passion. What's not coveting? And and again, to be sure, desire is not evil in in and of itself, okay? The Tenth Commandment does not prohibit us from desiring good or nice things, okay? For example, it's not entirely wrong. I don't believe it's entirely wrong to want a house that's as nice as your neighbor. Okay, so your neighbor does this little add-on, and you, it's really nice. You like it. You go, you know what? I, I'd like to put an addition on our back way or wing. That's not necessarily wrong. When we think we're more deserving than our neighbor, and we want to see our neighbor lose what he or she has, now you're getting into crooked, wicked covetousness to be jealous for what our neighbor has or for who they have. Are you with me? So this is not some generic, abstract command that you must not desire anything. This is not a call to kill desire. This is what it's not. Jesus never said, do away with your desires, because he places desires in the heart. He does this. He wants more desire from you, not less. Did you know that? You're in Christ. He came. He saved you. He gave you life spiritual, eternal life. He puts desire in you, and he wants you to have more desire, not less, than you already have. 
just wants its aim to be right, the locus of focus to be proper. He preached, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, teaching us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's pretty big. That's a pretty great desire. To desire his will, to desire his way. So, question. How many times, I don't think I haven't done some self-examination here this week. How many times as a Christian has covetousness consumed you? In a bad way. Innumerable times, amen? Falling prey to this evil-shaped desired, not God-honoring ones. See, Paul realized that the, the, the law's demands were omnipresent. Okay, look at what he said, Romans 7. Again, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet it. But sin, notice, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. So this commandment shines the light of God's holiness inwardly to the core of our being. And again, it kills us. It nails us to the cross. And then the response for the Christian is what? Romans 7, 24, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Ah, thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Now that's the ultimate remedy. (laughs) The law killed you. You've been set free from the law and the just punishment due for breaking the law by the man who kept the law. The whole law. Jesus Christ. Verse 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. So Jesus took my covetousness in his body with him, and it was nailed to the cross, beloved. You see this? This is the upward swing. This is the peak right here and therefore i bear it no more he who bore the punishment for my sin sovereignly rules and reigns over all so if i'm in him i can truly be content because now because i'm in him i'm an heir of what all things All things are yours, beloved, because you're in Christ who upheld the commandment, who upheld the law in your place, and he took my covetousness upon himself on the cross in my place, the one and only Son of God. I am an heir of him, therefore I'm an heir of all things so I can be content because I'm an heir of all things. See, we have to get the locus of focus back on the right place when we fall into this covetousness or this wrong kind of covetousness therefore he said in matthew 6 19 do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth okay that's where moth and rust what destroy 
and thieves, they break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Therefore, I can, you can, we can seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, knowing that all these things will be added unto you. Matthew 6.33. So it's now possible because contentment, contentment is found in God and godliness. He's done it all. So our desire takes on new meaning. Okay? Desire now takes on new meaning. One commentator has said this of desire. That desire is like Mustangs running free across the plains of our lives. But scripture doesn't tell us to slay the horse. It doesn't tell us to kill the desire, but to harness them. Amen? Okay, this is the word to the Christian. We harness them. We rein them in. We bring them under control. That is under the control of the Holy Spirit who gives us desires that are holy. Set apart, honoring to God. Remember when Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 5, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit what? The earth. That's your inheritance. And meekness is not weakness, but meekness is power under control. It's like a wild stallion. Once you rein in the wild stallion and break the stallion... That's, he still is powerful, amen? But he's under control. That's what Christ does in his work through us. So controlling our desires is now possible by the resident presence of the Holy Spirit in Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus because he has redeemed not only us, but also our desires. He's redeemed our desires. He's redeemed our passions. He's given us new birth, new birth to our desires redirecting our aim, our focus. To do what? He's redirected them. He's redeemed them to do what? To covet. He's he's redeemed your desires to covet what is true, what is good, and what is righteous. Amen? I covet the picture of Revelation 21 and 22. A new heaven and a new earth a new Eden, a greater Eden, because Christ has redeemed it all. You know the Bible, to know how to read the Bible, you have to start in Genesis 3 and see it as a big horseshoe-shaped path back to a greater Eden, a redeemed Eden, full of redeemed people who have redeemed desires with their sovereign Lord. So if there's no desire, there can be no satisfaction. With redeemed desires, we, we have a new aim, a new locus of focus for which James talks about. Not to covet that which is less, but to covet that which is best. Amen? So we need to know what coveting is, bad and good. Young people, as I close up, young people, in the years to come, as your parents are raising you in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, In the years to come, people are going to say to you, whether it's in a a conversation with a friend, you're most certainly going to hear it on TV. You're most certainly going to hear it in the movies. You're going to hear someone say, you know, this Christianity you believe in, 
You know, this faith that your parents have beaten into you, that they've raised you in, reality is, man, they're depriving you of pleasure. They're quenching and killing your desires, man. And you should be fulfilling those desires in other ways. Look at me. I'm happy. They're going to do it. They're going to tell you you need to be liberated. You need to be set free from those old-fashioned restrictions, from that churchy life that your parents and church people have placed upon you. And you will be tempted. Children, young people, you will be tempted to take that bait, but that bait is poison. It is a lie. You will be tempted. Guarantee you will be tempted. There's nothing wrong and sinful about temptation. It's when we fall prey to it. And you'll start to scratch your chin and you'll say to yourself, hmm, maybe they're right. I've been depriving myself of certain pleasures. And the temptation is to take on a covetous heart for that which is less and not best. That kind of temptation is nothing new. That's why I read from Psalm 73 in Asaph. My feet almost slipped. I almost fell. Looking out as he did unto the world, he became envious, covetous of the unbeliever. Do you see this? He began to covet the unbeliever's life. But then, when he was brought to his senses, right? Back to the locus of focus, the truth of God. He said this, Psalm 73, verse 25. Whom, I ha- whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart, they may fail. They will fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So this faith in the one true God is not to deny you, beloved, but to enrich you. We have to remind one another of this. You're faced with this kind of temptation every single day. That's why David could say in Psalm 19, listen to this. I desire the word above gold. Word for desire, you know what it is? Covet. Same word. I covet God's word above above everything else. I covet God's promises. You want to covet something? Covet the promises of God in the midst of your toil. Do it. Covet in that way. Amen? My pastor told me to covet. So let's be real, brothers and sisters. There's a war going on within our own hearts, a war of desire, a war for passions, as penned by James, we read of it in most of the New Testament letters, that our desires don't naturally follow along with God. They don't naturally fall along with the pleasures of God. We have to repent and submit ourselves to the Holy Spirit who resides within us and will take us back to the Word. We do this by faith, day after day after day. So no one can avoid the bullets, beloved, at least I know I can't, of a message on coveting. No way. In this present life, we labor in Christ through the word, by the power of the spirit. We're not left to ourselves and we'll never outgrow 
will never outgrow this battle until the Prince of Peace comes back. So as we persevere, as we run the race, we'll continue to see failings in our lives. So where do we go? It's what we read earlier. Run back, run back to Romans 7 and Romans 8. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death and follow it through chapter 8. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? He bore the curse of the law. The law, because you're in Christ, will never be held against you because he fulfilled it for you. Amen? So now to properly and rightly reflect God is to desire what he desires. That's it. Amen? This is what we have to be reminded of. Because the love that fulfills the law is the love by which Christ gave himself for you to redeem you as a gift to the Father. It's a gift to the Son to be given back to the Father, ultimately. And you will inherit a new heaven and a new earth. That's everything. Blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth. Meek in what? Meekness is knowing, because the beatitude before it is blessed are those who are poor in spirit. The meek inherit the earth because the meek are those who realize they're poor in spirit and they cannot in any way do anything to please God outside of being in his provision, and that is his son. Those are the meek. Those in Christ shall inherit the earth. For he will ultimately present you not only as faultless and guiltless before the throne, but also as pure and what? So, if we're going to covet anything, let's covet God's word and his promises of what he holds in store for you. And that is a full and complete redeemed world. Amen. May the Lord bless his word to your heart.